to Lessons from History with Daisy and Elizabeth. This time we will be discussing the landmark 1870 Education Act, which expanded access to primary education in England and Wales. In previous episodes, we've talked about two extremes of the social spectrum, public schools, which catered for the elite, and working-class autodidacts, who did not have access to formal education. Daisy, for the majority of children who sat between those two poles, what was the educational landscape like before 1870? Well, there are lots of schools in England. There are lots of schools for the working class, lots of schools for working class children, but there aren't enough. And there's no real national system of education before 1870. So what you've got happening before this, this sort of landmark moment, 1870 Education Act, is lots of religious schools and lots being set up by different religious groups. So the sort of three main ones, the, the Anglicans provide education through something called the National Society, uh, non-conformist Christians, they're providing education with the British Society. And you also have the Catholic Education Service, um, which uh, sets up schools as well. I think for a modern audience, we should probably explain a little bit more about non-conformism, because it's not really a term you hear that much these days. Absolutely. And it is a crucial part of this story, because the non-conformists, as we're about to see, play a really important role in this 1870 Act and some of the controversies over it. So I think, yeah, un- understanding what they are, and as you say, Anglicans, the Church of England, the Catholic Church, they're still around today. They still have maybe less influence than they had in the 19th century, but we know what they are. Whereas, as you say, dissenters, nonconformists, not as not, not as much political influence now as, as they had in the 19th century. So then they're nonconformists in a religious sense, and it's a catch-all term for Protestants who dissented from the established Church of England. And we sometimes just call that the established Church or the Anglican Church, all the same thing. And in the 19th century, these nonconformists are mainly Methodists and Baptists, although there are actually plenty of other denominations or groups out there. So maybe the Quakers um, are one that people might be a bit more familiar with. Yeah, definitely. And just on that, on the Quakers, you mentioned them. I'm just going to chip in there because when I was when I was a kid, definitely, if, if, I, if I did think about nonconformism or dissent, I thought of it in terms of um, they all founded the big chocolate companies. That was always the way I thought of nonconformists. So Cadbury's. Uh, Cadbury, the Cadbury brothers, they were Quakers. Uh, Roundtree uh, was uh, also a Quaker, founded a chocolate factory. And Joseph Fry, Fry's uh, Turkish delight, <laughs> another another Quaker. Um, that might seem like a bit of a tangent, but actually, as we think we'll see later, it, it's kind of relevant that 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 cadre, if you like, of um, maybe quite high-minded, quite principled, um, quite, quite principled sort of re- religious people who wanted to, in lots of ways kind of improve, improve, you know, living standards, living conditions for, for, for poor people. Nowadays, maybe we think of chocolate as being something that's uh, junk food and a bad thing. But I think in the 19th century, it had more positive connotations. And a good alternative from alcohol, right? So they wanted to encourage people to be drinking hot chocolate rather than gin. And it, absolutely. So and, and also the, the fact that these people are setting up chocolate companies, they're setting up, uh, they're industrialists as well. And as I say, that's going to be a key feature in terms of the 1870 Education Act, that this, these, these types of people are going to have a big influence on, on the debates around it. And also in this era, we're talking about 1870, I find it absolutely remarkable as well, the, the limitations on Catholics and nonconformists, how late they persist, right up until the, 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 the sort of early 19th century, the, the Catholics and nonconformists, they, they can't hold public office, they can't be members of parliament. And I think actually right up until 1870, they can't graduate from Oxford or Cambridge. Um, and I think sometimes maybe that maybe isn't enforced as much, but there are real limitations on what, what Catholics and nonconformists can do at this stage. And that's kind of setting a bit of the scene for, for some of the arguments about this 1870 Act. 
Can we talk a little bit about the data on who was going to what kind of school? Do we have stuff from the census? At the time when the 1870 bill was introduced to introduce uh, all of these new new state schools, if you like, there's a few statistics that are introduced at the start of it. You can read them in Hansard. And roughly speaking, uh, you know, there's a few a few sort of um, a few differing figures. But roughly speaking, in 1870, there are about four million working class children in England between the ages of three and 12. Um, and at that point, some of them are getting some kind of education. So, as I say, it's not like there's no education at this moment in time. There is some education. Maybe about uh, a million or so are in some form of sort of state aided school. So a school that is receiving some kind of funding from the state. And maybe another million or so are in completely voluntary schools. So maybe religious schools that are funded by um, religious organisations or funded by also fees from parents. But then maybe about two million have no access to school whatsoever. So this is a bit of a problem. And people have been saying for a while this is a problem, that we need, that you know, the country needs more more schools, it needs to educate its, its children. Um, as I say, some of these schools, there is still an element of state funding. Since 1833, there have been government grants for all of these schools. But those grants, they're not, not terrible. Um, so I think by... Again, this is all in the introduction to the that, that first bill. By um, 1869, the last year before the Act, the state is contributing £634,000 to, to education. So it's making grants to some of these religious schools, grants to some of these voluntary schools. That's not a negligible sum of money. It's significant, but isn't really enough to get you a proper national system that provides universal education. So that's the kind of issue. That's where everyone is in, in 1870. And most of these schools are religious in some way, shape or form. There aren't many secular schools out there. That's absolutely right. And that's true, I think, across the board. And one, actually, one of the characters we're going to look at a little bit later, we're going to look at Joe Chamberlain, Joseph Chamberlain, who's a politician who plays a big role in this. He goes to UCS, an independent school, um, I think, which is an example of a, a rare example. It's some of a secular school. But certainly in terms of all of the schools that are popping up for working class uh, children, yeah, most of them seem to be coming through, as I say, the Anglican, uh, the, the Anglicans, either the dissenting, dissenting churches or the, the Catholic Church. A huge role and influence for all of these, um, for all of the different religious communities. And, that, and the state is mostly kind of funding. Uh, before 1870, the state is making grants and make, making money available to those schools. Can we dig into why children aren't getting education? Is it because there simply aren't enough schools? Is it because their parents would rather have them out earning in a factory? So it's a mix of things. Partly, I think there's a, a growing population, even though more and more schools, there are more schools being, being built, there aren't enough being built to, to match the, the kind of growth of the population. You've got a particular issue as with a lot of provision of social services with, with the, the big new manufacturing cities. And again, in the introduction to the to the to the bill, it points out that the, the situation is particularly bad in cities like Leeds, like Birmingham. There just aren't enough schools there. So partly there's just not enough provision. Partly, I think you're right that parents want their student, want their children to go out to, to work and earn money. Partly it's that a lot of these schools, they, even though they're getting a bit of state funding and a bit of voluntary funding, they still charge fees. So even even very poor parents will have to pay maybe a couple of pence a week, and some of them can't afford that. So there's a mix of reasons why why children aren't going to schools. And that's that's exactly what, what what this 1870 Act is trying to do something about. And is it universal? 
in popularity the idea of educating more children it's really interesting i think the debate by 1870 has moved on from where it was maybe 50 years before so you go back 50 years and there were debates about these initial government grants to the religious schools and but if you go back to then there were people in parliament saying why do working class people need education in the first place so there's an 1807 debate in parliament where an mp says giving education to the labouring classes of the poor would be found to be prejudicial to their morals and happiness. It would teach them to despise their lot in life instead of making them good servants in agriculture. Instead of teaching them subordination, it would render them factious and refractory. Um, As was evident in the manufacturing counties, it would enable them to read seditious pamphlets, vicious books and publications against Christianity. (laughs) So (laughs) you go back to 1807, that's a bit of the attitude then. Why do we even need this? But I think by 1870, that has really changed. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I think a big one is the 1867 Reform Act. So the 1867 Reform Act gives a lot of working class people the vote. A lot of people previously maybe quite conservative, even those who didn't like the 1867 Reform Act, didn't like working class people getting the vote. They're kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, (laughs) they've got the vote now. Maybe we better uh, (laughs) maybe we better educate them. And there's a, a key figure in this, this time, Rob, Robert Lowe, who's a, an MP and plays a part in a lot of these debates. And he says, we must educate our masters. So if, if the working people are going to be electing us, they need to learn to, they need to be literate, they need to learn to read, we need to educate them. So I think that sort of tra- traditional conservative opposition that was there in the very early 19th century has kind of faded away by this point. Um, and yeah, there's probably sort of, I think, an element of bipartisan agreement that this, this needs to happen. And how does England, really specifically talking about England and Wales in this episode, how do we compare with, with Scotland, with other European countries, with America at this time? So this is probably another reason why Conservatives are a little bit less opposed to it than they were, because everyone's starting to look around the world, look at what's going on abroad uh, and say, hang on a minute, are we falling a bit behind? And the classic comparison that is made at this point is one that actually gets made a lot today. People are comparing, well, 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 back then people are comparing with Prussia. And nowadays, I think a lot of people in the UK were constantly looking at the German education system. It's quite a constant sort of comparison. Um, but in 1870, it's Prussia. Uh, Prussia is the system everyone is looking at because they've uh, they've had a big victory over Austria in a war in 1866. In 1870, kind of the, as the bill is going through, they're, they're fighting a, a war with France. And what, what's this got to do with education? Well, back in 1763, Frederick the Great introduced this Prussian education system, which people see perhaps as a factor in the rise of Prussia, in, the, in their military success, um, in the sort of, you know, cohesion as a state. So people are sort of looking to that and going, maybe we need a little bit of this. Gladstone, who's the Prime Minister at this time, he's a little bit sceptical. Um, he, he says, oh, I'm not sure, you know, maybe people are making too much of this. But certainly sort of people look at it and are impressed by it. So sending your children to school means that you can win war? <laughs> I think, yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, um, I always find it interesting now that it's the same attitude now that I think people have with, with Germany, that, with the German education system, that almost a bit of admiration tinged with a bit of jealousy and envy and are they doing better than us and are they going to get ahead of us and even people who maybe don't don't like to think that they're particularly sort of jingoistic or particularly nationalistic yeah I think there's that element of thinking we don't want another country to get ahead of us (laughs) um we don't want another country to sort of steal a march 
and maybe you know the, the military side of things is 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 very striking but also germany at this stage is obviously i think also you know rapidly industrializing lots of scientific breakthroughs so so people are, are, are pretty impressed with it and it's certainly a reference point the other interesting reference point maybe doesn't get mentioned as much but scotland is really striking how different it is we're talking 1870 england you know doesn't really have a education education act that it's ever passed Scotland passed something similar in 1616. <laughs> Scotland passed a 1616 Act for a, a school in every parish. Um, it has a few fits and starts. Later acts have to be brought in that actually uh, sort of make it happen. But very, very striking that something similar to the 1870 Act is, is happening in Scotland kind of 200 years uh, previously. So there's lots of people saying this time, England's, England's an outlier, England's quite backward, like we need to get our act together, we need to you know, get, get, with, the, get with the modern times <laughs> and, and, and get some kind of national education system. So that's where, where things are in about 1870. I've just been wading through an Extinction Rebellion protest in order to get here to do this recording. And it made me think about the fact that so many legislative reforms actually start with external agitation. And how does that play in? I mean, you're talking about the fact that there isn't the political will for this, but was there lobbying from outside of government? Absolutely. So there are definitely groups outside Parliament who help help get this act forward. But there are also, as I say, groups outside it who maybe not not helpful in getting it passed, but are helpful in, in shaping it in the way that, that it appears. And the really big pressure group who have a huge impact here are called the Birmingham Education League. And they're founded in 1869. And the main figure, the, the, the founder of them, is Joseph Chamberlain. And Joseph Chamberlain goes on to be a hugely significant figure in, in, in British politics. And obviously his son, Neville Chamberlain, probably more famous to us now as Prime Minister at the start of World War II. Um, but Chamberlain really makes a national name for himself over this 1870 Act. And Chamberlain's background, he is one of the nonconformists, one of the dissenters I've been talking about earlier. He's a leader of um, wealthy industrialists, quite high-minded nonconformists. And the, the big push they have with the Birmingham Education League, which becomes a National Education League, is they want the state funding of schools to happen, but they want it to be completely secular, because for them, that's the only way they can preserve their nonconformity against the state and against state religion they don't want if you like their taxpayers money <laughs> being spent on religious ideas that they are hostile to so they're very much in, in they, they are in favor you know they're okay with state funding but they, they very much want it to be secular they don't want it to be funding um funding anglican schools uh, funding schools that are part of the established church if, if you like in a sense, this Birmingham Education League is pushing for a national education system. But in a sense, it's in some ways, you know, make, probably making it a bit more difficult to, to, to get the, the compromise that's needed. Because in the end, um, both this Education League, Chamberlain and a lot of his allies and a lot of, a lot of people in Parliament who are on this side, um, this becomes one of the, the big disputes, the extent of, to which these schools should be secular or religious. So what does the 1870 Education Act actually look like? So this is... An interesting point because we're we're doing a whole podcast on this we obviously think it's a big deal to be doing the whole podcast i've, I've framed it as well the 1870 act you know this 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 sort of first big education act in, in england but there's now a bit of a school of thought that says because of a lot of the compromises that, that happen and a lot of these sort of religious disputes <laughs> actually it's not that big a deal <laughs> in the end that it ends up um it doesn't in the end create free or universal or compulsory education <laughs> 
Um, so we'll come back at the end maybe and discuss, you know, whether it is therefore as significant as we think. But so what are the big things that it does do? Probably the most significant thing it does, which it's probably still we're feeling the impact of, is it compels the creation of local school boards. Um, so almost, I guess, the forerunner of sort of local educational authorities, um, local, some of the, the educational aspect of local authorities that they have now. And these local school boards are, are actually elected um, and they kind of have some they have some some roles. They have some particular powers they can exercise. They can do a census in the area, see if there are enough schools in the area. If there aren't, they can get funding to set up schools. They can set up. So if there aren't enough, they can choose to compel attendance but they don't have to compel attendance. So again, there's all these sort of hedges that are being built in. <laughs> um, they, they, yeah, they're this new sort of institution that's that's being founded to try and bring in a bit more of a national system uh, of something where to, to fill in some of these gaps where there just aren't enough schools. So probably the, the creation of these elected school boards and the, 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 the fundraising powers that they have and the powers they have to... Um, to uh, set you know get set up new schools and compel attendance that's that's pretty significant that's that's pretty significant so that's that's what you end up with so as i understand part of the reason they're elected is that they have the ability to raise funds and it's important that that's a representative group of people making those decisions so how do they go around raising money this is a crucial aspect of it and obviously this is the thing that causes a lot of controversy because people you know non-conformists don't want their taxpayers money being spent in certain ways so what can these school boards do well they are elected and they do have the power to finance themselves and they can finance themselves basically by making an addition to effectively the precursors i guess to council tax which would be the, the local the sort of poor rate the municipal rates so they, they have the power to to add to that um and spend it on schools and also in order to actually build the schools to get capital funding for the schools they can apply to government as well so they do have and, and they can make grants to existing schools. So they have some pretty interesting yeah, sort of financial powers. They are elected, as I said, and there's an interesting little um little side note on electoral history. I think it's the first it's the first time that women can stand for election. Um and, and I guess in a, in a way that doesn't of all the controversies about this act, that is one that almost don't, don't get doesn't get much attention. But women can stand for these elected school board positions. I think it's very much the idea that this is the women's realm matters of children and education absolutely yeah it's to do with education yeah absolutely for sure so it doesn't cause almost nearly as much controversy as your sort of later you know suffragist movement so it sounds very straightforward to us now but its passage through parliament was not easy can you explain some of the controversies that extended around this act we've got to now that turn to religion and look at religion so we talked about the non-conformist dissenters a little bit at the beginning we've got to kind of look at it now because it is the religious aspect of this that actually is the reason why this act is delayed essentially you've got catholics dissenters church of england and particularly the the dissenters are very very wary and have historically been really wary of any state funding of education because they see that as essentially a way that the state will attempt to enforce its own religious views on children I suppose in some ways I've, I've said this makes England look backward. It doesn't get an education system to 1870. But in some ways, if you want to sort of, I guess, defend the, the English state in, in this in this case, you would say, well, it's it's really tricky because there's there's a there is a lot of opposition to it for religious reasons. Um, and, and so from the early 19th century, the state in some ways is trying to get involved with funding education. But 
it's always having to be careful about what it can do because of these um, religious controversies. And as I say, to understand all this, we've we've got to try and imagine ourselves back into the mindset of, of, of these religious disputes. And I think that's difficult because Britain today is such a secular country. I think it's it's sometimes, you know, a, a lot of the, the things that people get worked up about, you, you look at them now and you think they, they can feel quite trivial and quite arcane and quite irrelevant to the modern world. And I think you can see this quite a bit when you read Anthony Trollope. So I'm a big Anthony Trollope fan. I'm not sure if you are, Lizzie. You, do you like Trollope? Yeah, yeah. I'm a big Trollope fan. I really like um, The Warden. Yeah. Are you a fan? Do you like the, the religious ones more, the politics ones? Or like, what's your... Oh, the politics, right? All the way. Yeah. Because because the religion the religion is hard to follow now, I think. That's the problem. It really is difficult to get back into that mindset. Absolutely. And so I think when you read Trollope, I, I really like Trollope. I do really like the religious books, but there's bits that you read and you think, wow, this is just so different. And I've picked out a bit here from Barchester Towers, which is one of my favourites. And it's talking about um, disputes between Anglicans and nonconformists. And it's from the point of view of a nonconformist clergyman. And it says his gall rises at a new church with a high pitched roof. A full breasted black silk waistcoat is with him a symbol of Satan. And a profane jest book would not, in his view, more foully desecrate the church seat of a Christian than a book of prayer printed with red letters and ornamented with a cross on the back. I think even today, some of that seems a bit unclear, but he's talking about the elements of high Anglicanism and feeling that that is, to him, uh, an anathema to his own religion. Absolutely. So this is a world where the height of the roof of a church, where the, you know, the colour of a waistcoat, the decorations on a prayer book, these are symbols that you're on a side. <laughs> and it's, it's, as I say, pretty easy to dismiss all this as being pretty trivial and arcane and, and who cares about this stuff. But I think one way we can imagine ourselves back into this, this world is I think we, our society at the minute is pretty divided. You know, Britain, England today is pretty divided about different things. And so I think there are some really interesting analogies. So, you know, this 1870 Act, there are some quite arcane legal niceties that it involves. Uh, and you can read them and think, why does any of this matter? And I think we've got to remember the analogy is some of the arcane legal points that are involved in Brexit and how people get really worked up about those. Yeah, totally, right? so, you, you know, I think there's there's analogies there. And I think also a, a large amount of this debate about should we be funding state schools and what should we be teaching in them? A lot of it is about the kind of ideas that it isn't isn't acceptable to subsidise with taxpayers' money. And I think that's, again, enormously relevant. You look at Gary Lineker recently and all the debates, you know, is he allowed to tweet about refugees? There are similar things here about what should we be teaching in schools? What is acceptable to, to, to be funded this for the state to fund and teach in schools? And the biggest controversy of all with the 1870 Act is debates about what kind of religious education will be appropriate. And again, this can sound um, pretty arcane, but I think the best possible analogy to, is, is, is with the very, you know, often quite bitter debates today about the kind of sex education that's appropriate in schools. I think that's a really good analogy um, because it is something that gets people so particularly heated. And it also shows how influential people feel education is. Um, and the power it can have to to shape uh, the outlook of young people. Absolutely, and I've, I've read a lot of the, the, these debates. I read them, I you know, a few years ago. Um, I, I, I read about a lot of these debates when I did a master's degree um, in Victorian Victorian history, and I was rereading lots of them again for to prepare for this. And 
I actually think when you start to compare them with the sex education debates, in some ways it feels a bit sacrilegious, but it actually gives you this whole new insight into it that I think is, is, you know, actually really works. So if I, you know, if you caricature the debate about sex ed today, I think you've got two extremes and you've got one extreme maybe that says, let's just not have um, any or very much sex education at all in schools. It's not the place of the school to provide this. And the other extreme says, maybe let's teach a smorgasbord of sexual activities no, let's just come along and let's teach everything. Uh, and then what you'll have is a lot of the time you'll have like the equivalent, the modern equivalent is there will be a centrist dad. You know, a centrist dad will come along and say, you know, I'm sure we're all reasonable people. Can't we just work out a compromise? Let's just teach something we can all agree on. You know, can't we just teach the basic science of reproduction? Maybe teach a few platitudes about loving relationships. And of course, what always happens to the centrist dad is that far from being loved by everyone, they get absolutely dunked on by everybody. <laughs> um... And that is exactly what happens with this 1870 Act. It's like a really similar parallel. So there are extremes on one side, basically the dissenters, the nonconformists, they say we want no religious education in these state schools whatsoever. They basically say leave it up to the family. It's not the job of the school. It's not the job of the state to be doing religious education. It's the family's job. And the extremes on the other side are saying, well, that's just not right because religion's important. And these are children's immortal souls we're talking about. We've got to be teaching every child the full smorgasbord of Anglican doctrine. And actually, the guy who is most on that side is the Prime Minister, is Gladstone. So Gladstone is a high Anglican, and he just thinks this is the job of the state. It is absolutely, if you believe in God and you believe in religion, this is what you think matters. This is what you need to be teaching children. So Gladstone is a Liberal Prime Minister, but he's at odds with quite a lot of the, the radical nonconformist wing of his party. So you get a bit of a split. And the, the centrist dad of the day is a guy called William Cooper Temple. And he suggests this compromise. And it becomes the famous, it becomes quite a famous clause in British constitutional history. It's the Cooper Temple Clause. And his compromise between the two, the centrist dad compromise, is to say, look, what we'll do is we'll do a basic form of sort of basic Christian religious education in these new state funded schools. And it will basically be some hymns and some Bible readings. And as I say, when I viewed this just in the context of religion, I've always struggled to get my head around why this didn't satisfy people, because on the surface it feels sort of reasonable, sensible, but it really doesn't. It doesn't satisfy anyone. It does actually in the empire, so it does kind of get the bill through, but it doesn't satisfy anyone. So Gladstone, who's this high Anglican, he in the end he supports it, he kind of knows he's got to support it, but he hates doing it. He hates doing it. And one of his biographers has said that across all of his career, it was the one compromise he most detested making. And I find that astonishing. If you think of the number of things Gladstone was involved in, the amount of time he spends working on things in Ireland, <laughs> uh, you know, the number of controversies he gets involved with, that this is the, the compromise he most detests. And again, if, if you are religious and you are high Anglican and you're committed to this, then it's pretty bad. You know, you feel, you feel maybe you've, you've, you've morally let yourself down, maybe. But of course, even though Gladstone feels like he's making an enormous compromise, it doesn't satisfy the radical nonconformist wing of his own party. And one of them, John Bright, he tables an amendment that goes even further than the Cooper Temple Clause and says no religious education in state schools at all. Um, and I think about 100, 120 Liberal MPs vote on that. And so the, the Education Act is only able to go through in the end with the votes of Conservatives coming on board to get it through. So Gladstone is reliant on Conservatives to, to get this bill over the line. That really is very reminiscent of the culture wars that we have today. It absolutely is. And I think that is the best way of looking at it. It, it is the culture war of its day. And I think what is also um, very fascinating is that the actual term culture war dates from this era. 
it doesn't date from England. So the term culture war is actually it's a, it's a German phrase. Uh, I'm gonna I don't have a very good very good accent for any foreign languages, but I'll give it a go. C- culture camp, right? <laughs> culture war, and originally. This refers to all of the real struggles in Prussia between Bismarck and the Catholic Church, which are over exactly this issue, whether the state or church should control school education. And in fact, um, just a year after the 1870 Education Act, Bismarck announces that he wants to get rid of religious education in Prussian schools. And that is generally seen as the, the sort of the, the, the start, the, the, the beginning of the German culture camp, the culture war. So... As I say, I think the religious aspects of these debates, when you just view them in these sort of the very narrow religious terms, they do seem a bit arcane and a bit irrelevant to the modern world. But I think the the aspects of them that are about who gets to control what students are taught in school, they're incredibly current, incredibly relevant. And I think they're just as divisive. And I think that they are historically in a number of countries, not just the UK, something that goes right to the heart of the difficulties of providing a state education system. So you touched on the idea that not everybody thinks the 1870 Education Act is this great landmark. Can you explain a little bit some of that revisionist thought? Definitely. So some people say, well, look, everyone says it's a big deal, but actually it doesn't bring in free education, it doesn't bring compulsory education, it doesn't bring in universal education. Is it really that big a deal? And actually this reminds me, I remember when I was at school, um, my history teacher, we were doing the 1832 Reform Act, and I remember her saying, the first lesson, she said, well, actually, you know, it wasn't that important at all because actually fewer working class people could vote after it than before it. And I remember thinking, well, why the hell are we studying it then if it's not that big a deal? <laughs> um, um, so <laughs> I think there was a bit of a trend to look at some of these big landmark acts in the 19th century and go, oh, they're not actually as big a deal as you think. But I, I would say I think the 1832 Reform Act is a big deal and this 1870 Act is a big deal. And the reason they're a big deal yeah, it's true you can scrutinise them and say, well, actually, when you look at the actual specifics of it, not that much, not as much happens as you think it does. But the really important thing about them both, uh, and a lot of these acts, is, is the principle they establish. It's the principle they establish. And so, for me, yeah, the 1832 Act is enormously important because it does establish this principle around sort of representation of the people. And similarly with 1870, it does establish the principle of states funding state running of education establishes these local authorities which are going to have a huge a huge role to play and a, a huge impact right right up to our present time and it's the start of a lot more acts so you have a lot more things that happen um you, you know within the next 30 or 40 years you've then got a series of, of these education acts that go each one going further and further and, and changing things up a bit so i still think it, it's true to say when you scrutinize the details of it maybe it doesn't sound that amazing but it's a huge landmark and it's a huge thing to get it over the line given the debates and all the controversies to just establish the principle of there is going to be government funding and government oversight um, and government intervention. So what do you think the educational legacy of the Act is? So, yeah, it's funny. This is all about the Education Act and we've talked so much about, about religion. What are the education um, what are the education implications of it? One thing we haven't really t- talked about a, a, a lot is, is literacy, <laughs> which is... One of the, the the big things that this act is is brought about to to improve to improve um, rates of literacy. So I'll give you a few a few stats and talk about what impact did this act have on on literacy, which you might see if if you're going to bring an education system. Surely that would be one of your key metrics. So in 1800, which is before you've got really any really significant state funding of education, um, apparently about 40% of men, 6% of women in England are illiterate. So that's a sort of start of the, the 19th century. 
1840, that's already gone down. So even in a world where you haven't got a, a real government system, that's already gone down to maybe just a third of men and half of women. Uh, and by 1870, so as I say, even before all this has come in, that's gone down even further, maybe just around about a fifth or a quarter of, of people are illiterate. So that's that, that's that, obviously that's not the act causing that, that's happening anyway. Um, and then by the turn of the century, the 20th century, the illiteracy rates for both sexes have dropped to just around 3%. And historians do argue about this. Some historians would say, well, literacy rates, illiteracy rates are plummeting across the 19th century. They're falling anyway, and that's going to carry on happening regardless of whether you bring in education acts or not. And others would say, no, this had a big impact. It really did improve um, the situation, got lots more people um, able to, 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 to read and write. So that's a little bit of a, a debate in the literature. But one thing that is very interesting, again, in terms of the, the, the legacy of that, that literacy, those improved uh, literacy rates are um, the impact it has on if like, publishing and the popular press. And there's some people who argue you can draw a bit of a line between the 1870 Act and the invention, the creation of the Daily Mail. <laughs> One of the first sort of most pop- popular sort of publications uh, for, for a mass market was a weekly magazine called Titbits. A slightly, slightly silly name. Not those kind of tits. <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not those. Um, so tidbits as in, you know, interesting little morsels of information, I think is, is what they meant. And it was a weekly magazine and it took, the, it was a sort of a, a little mini encyclopedia. And it was designed deliberately by a guy called George Nunes, um, sort of a bit of a founding father of, of popular journalism. It was designed by him to appeal to all these newly literate young readers. And working class readers, presumably. Too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The, the kind of the kind of people who were going to school and learning to read as a result of the 1870 Education Act. So this was very much this, this new audience. This was designed to appeal to them. So they're not going to want to read the Times. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So, and it's, you know, the same as we see today with new media appealing to, to youngsters and taking on forms which they're more interested in. We see that now. Um, do kids watch the telly anymore? They're all on TikTok. So yeah, do you want to read the Times if you're a kid? No, you want something that's designed for you. Tidbits, I guess, the TikTok of its day, maybe. So it got a circulation of... 700,000, which is pretty significant. And who's heard of it now? It's sort of faded into obscurity. But what has not faded into obscurity are two newspapers that really have their roots in, in, in this in this magazine. One is the Daily Mail. So the Daily Mail is founded by Alfred Harmsworth and he's a contributor to Tidbits. So he learns a lot of what he knows on this magazine. And the Daily Express is uh, launched by a guy called Arthur Pearson who worked at Tidbits for five years after he won a competition to get a job on the magazine. So you can see Daily Mail, Daily Express very significant forms of popular journalism today, arguably because they have their roots in this um, newly literate audience that, that's formed after the, the 1870 Act. So that's a pretty interesting uh, kind of implication that, that maybe people, people didn't have or don't think about. So that's one sort of impact it's had. What's another impact? Again, if you're into education nowadays, if you're an education nerd and you're into your education policy debates in England, a lot of people will talk about the middle tier. This is something that... Um, and what is the middle tier... Well, if you think you've got central government making the rules in the centre at Whitehall, you've got all your schools, actual schools on the ground doing stuff, kind of what sits in between. And there are huge debates now about what that middle tier is and should look like. And Michael Gove back in 2010 when he was education minister kind of blew up <laughs> what, what kind of middle tier there was. And, and now there's sort of different suggestions about how you could reconstruct it. So local education authorities used to be very dominant yeah. until we entered the free school yeah movement yeah. and we now have academies which report directly to government mm -hmm. that's right 
and that's effectively hollowed out the local education authorities? Yeah, so sort of Gove in 2010 and even starting actually with New Labour a bit before that um, gave schools a bit more power. Gove kind of really accelerated that and, and gave them even more power. So schools kind of having more power and the local education authorities having less power. That's definitely been a trend of the last 30 years, I would say, in um, English education. Uh, and as I say, there are a lot of debates now about whether we've got the right situation and perhaps whether schools now, the system's maybe too fragmented. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is the middle tier is a very live issue <laughs> in modern English education. <laughs> and in a sense, you can trace a lot of those debates right back to 1870 and actually before 1870, because there is a school of thought and um, there's a a policy guy called Jonathan Simons who was actually writing about this in the context of today's debates recently. There's a school of thought that says, actually, the middle tier in England has probably always been a bit weak. And maybe the reason it's always been a bit weak is because before the 1870 Act, you have nothing and you've just got all this funding from the centre, from government just funding kind of some of the religious organisations, some of the religious schools uh, so you can and, and, and in fact, you can go back even more than that and say, look at all the independent schools that exist that have existed for hundreds of years, as we discussed in our public school episode. They have enormous power and influence, too. So there's a school of thought that says the middle tier, it's always been tricky. It's never been kind of straightforward. And there's been periods perhaps where there's been the middle tier local authorities that have a, a bit more power than they have now and a bit less power. But it maybe there's a, an aspect of education in England where there's always been individual schools and there's been central government and it's been hard to get something in between that, that kind of works. So I absolutely think, yeah, for me, when you read these debates about the 1870 Act, there are so, so many parallels. Um, you absolutely see the sort of the, the, yeah, the echoes of history. And before we finish the episode, I did want to revisit the Cooper Temple Clause <laughs> because hearing that phrase made me feel very nostalgic towards my misspent youth, listening to the now very obscure little known indie band of the same name though spelt differently you remember i, I said that the the, the the sort of big clause the big amendment that was brought into this this act was the cooper temple clause um by a chap called cooper temple it's actually cooper spelled c-o-w-p-e-r um, but yeah pronounced cooper temple and as i say this did become a bit of a, a landmark of british constitutional history to get to get this this act um completed and you're absolutely right that 20 years ago now <laughs> there was a, an indie band called the cooper temple clause actually spelt cooper um c-o-o-p-e-r uh, and they had a few hits and you're right lizzie i remember them too and the the thing i remember is they had a i think their best-selling single was on the soundtrack to fifa 2004 it was called Promises, Promises. So I have many happy memories of, uh, of, of yeah, FIFA 04 and Promises, Promises in the background. And I must say, when I was playing it, I, I didn't realise who the Cooper Temple Clause were named after. So yeah, who, know, who knows why they named themselves after that? Perhaps they sat through many A-level lessons on, on, on constitutional history and, and, and felt, it would be, felt it would be a good name. I watched some archive footage of them going, you know, for a real nostalgia deep dive. And their favourite thing to do with interviewers would be to make up different reasons for the name. Okay. And I think okay. I think part of this was that they were just too embarrassed to admit how geeky they all were. <laughs> so they had to come up with more and more outlandish reasons right. <laughs> for, for the name's origin. <laughs> to, to be fair to them, that, um, as I say, I think British constitutional history at A-level does get a bit of a, a bad rep. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to point out, you know, if, if people have made it this far, we have absolutely done our best here. Uh, you know, we've taken on <laughs> British constitutional history 
and we've given you a smorgasbord of sex education. We've given you FIFA 2004 and we've given you the Daily Mail. So, you know, we're pulling out all <laughs> the tidbits. Tidbits. I mean, <laughs> we're pulling out all the stops. So, yeah, I hope, I hope, yeah, as I say, if you made it this far, uh, you found it interesting. Um, and I think we'll be, we'll be back soon with, uh, we've got a few other, a few other ideas of some more 19th century bits. We might be, might be doing some episodes on as well. So do join us for that. Bye-bye.